Well, if you have a Bible, we'll be in Daniel chapter 3 this morning. But I wanted to, whew, I smell that uh, anointing oil. It's like lavender. Um, <laughs> sorry. I'm easily distracted by scents. I have a big nose. I get everything. It's just, it's a superpower or something. So how do you know that the Lord is with you? How do you know that he will rescue and save? And, and what will that salvation look like when it's worked out in your life? Was the Lord with the Apostle Paul? If you don't know Paul, Paul was a passionate missionary in the early days of the church uh, who sensed a call from the Lord to bring the good news of Jesus to, to Greeks and Jews alike. And that kind of sounds promising. He sounds like the sort of guy that the Lord would be with, that the Lord would be for, that the Lord would be showing up and showing his power in Paul's life. But I want to share with you a little of the data from his experience. And tell me if this sounds like someone who's walking in the spirit and power of the Lord. And I don't just want a church answer. I want you to actually... Get in your own head and your perspective and, and ask yourself, would these circumstances reinforce or call into question God's goodness or presence or power? So towards the end of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is visiting Jerusalem. He's visiting an old friend and uh, ministry partner, and he decides while he's there to sneak away to the temple, to worship there in God's presence. And as he walks in, some of his opponents see him and they stir up the crowd to this just fury. And he's attacked and he's publicly arrested and whipped. And to avoid kind of this further mob justice, he appeals to his right as a Roman citizen to a Roman trial. So he's put in chains by the soldiers and he's shipped off to Rome. And as he's in transit, the, the ship that he's on uh, gets caught in a storm and sinks and he washes up on the Mediterranean island of Malta. And as he's there, he starts to kind of gather this firewood uh, to make this kind of makeshift fire from the driftwood for he and his other kind of waterlogged companions. And as he's there throwing these sticks into the flames, he discovers that there was a deadly viper that had been there camouflaged among the sticks. And as it hits the flames, it shoots out and it bites him on the hand. And the bite is a death sentence. So that's the data of his experience. From an outside perspective, it looks like he's careening from one disaster to another. Failure and woe seem to be his continual companions. And it appears that there's little circumstantial evidence to confirm that he's right where God wants him, that he's living his best life, that he's walking in his true calling. But he is. Last week, we learned that in times of crisis, one of the tools available to us as God's people is divine revelation. 
Sometimes we're compelled to ask God to share his perspective, to, to let us in on what he's doing, to unveil how he's working. And as Daniel prayed last week, he said this, Blessed be the name of God forever. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells with him. And in Paul's journey too, God gifted him with these glimpses behind the curtain. Here's two examples from the book of Acts. This is Acts 23. The following night, the Lord stood by him. This is when he's in prison, arrested after that riot, and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And then again, God speaks while he's on the ship. For this very night... Acts 27, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So he says to his companions, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. God is with him. God's directing him. God's preserving him, but he's still arrested. He's still beaten. He's still shipwrecked. He's still snake bit. What do we do with that? How does that shape your understanding of God's presence and God's salvation? And this morning, we're back in the book of Daniel. We're in it's one of its most famous stories. And Daniel's not actually part of the narrative today. He's going to be off on business. He's off on an assignment somewhere. He's unable to help or support his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in their hour of need. Three men you might know better by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or you might know better by their VeggieTale names, which was Rack, Shack, and Benny. Or another... Beautiful butchering uh, that I heard this week. Sad rat, mean hat, and bendy goat. (laughs) And I am for whatever ridiculous version of their names because as I said in uh, Daniel chapter 1, I think that would make Daniel smile because he's specifically misspelling their pagan names as kind of shot at the Babylonian gods. So whatever, butcher their names, it would make Daniel proud. But I digress. (laughs) So let's dive into Daniel chapter 3, and we'll hear what our story has to tell us. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, then the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, 
bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So let's get our bearings. Who is this Nebuchadnezzar guy again? Well, he's known to history as Nebuchadnezzar II. He's the mighty leader of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And Scripture gives him the title, the Destroyer of Nations. That's because he's the one who sacked the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. He's the one who conquered the Israelite nation of Judah. He's the one who pacified Egypt, an ancient superpower. And last week, he was the recipient, we discovered, of a bad dream about a giant statue that was made out of a variety of precious metals. And in the dream, the statue was toppled and destroyed by a boulder that was not thrown by human hands. And Daniel had revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar that the dream was foretelling the downfall of his kingdom and really any kingdom that would refuse to acknowledge God and God's authority. And so that's where we are. And, and shaken by that nightmare, Nebuchadnezzar's starting to, he's trying to reinforce his position. In contradiction to that dream, he builds a colossal statue, but this time entirely out of gold. And this thing is 90 feet tall and about nine feet wide. It's very um, tall and skinny. It seems like he's compensating. He's, he's feeling small and vulnerable. And so he creates this big image that embodies his empire's political and economic power. And it's likely not the statue of a god, it's um, very likely this stele, a sort of a, a engraved pillar, a monument that represents Nebuchadnezzar and his imperial authority. And in the ancient world, these things were key to rituals around the swearing of loyalty oaths. So he's feeling vulnerable, so he gets everybody in his kingdom to this plain, and he wants them to swear their allegiance to him. Because participating in this rite signified the acceptance of the king's sovereignty and often the sovereignty of the king's God as well. But Nebuchadnezzar is doing something unusual here. He's trying to blur the line between political allegiance and worship. He's not directly coming out and saying, hey, worship me as a God. But he's saying, hey, worship this thing that's a representation of me and my kingdom as a God. And it becomes this point of conviction for our three Jewish exiles, a line that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego cannot cross. It's because they know while we're called to faithfully engage with our culture, we are uncompromising in whom and what we worship. I'll serve you faithfully, my king, but you ain't my God. I'll give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but what's reserved only for God, my worship, my heart, 
my life, that is not yours. So these three refuse to comply, and their defiance is reported to the king. And we'll pick it up in verse 12 as we eavesdrop on the snitches that are going to rat Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out to the king. These are fellow bureaucrats who are trying to cause trouble. Verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Sorry, I can't make them not sound ridiculous. (laughs) Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound, and this guy really likes his symphony, the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship... You shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? These three exiles, they're feeling the pressure, the the royal rage. There's this pressure from authority. There's this pressure for conformity. There's this pressure that's intensified by the malice of the kind of political maneuvering that's escalated through this violent intimidation. But our guys seem to just shake it off. And even Daniel, who's writing this account, he, he seems to be mocking all of the pomp in the circumstance. He repeatedly tells us that this quote-unquote God was set up. It was made and erected by human hands. So while this is a fearful moment, true, there's also farce here. We're seeing this terrified king who has delusions of divinity. A desperate man who is trying to control the uncontrollable and supplant God as the Lord of the world. And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they, they respond with solemnity, but they also respond with sarcasm and maybe just a bit of, of swagger. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you've set up. O Nebuchadnezzar, Chad, can we call you Chad? (laughs) We've been your humble servants for years now. We're in your quarter. We're your faithful advisors. You know where we stand. But you know where we stand. We don't have to answer you here. You know how this is going to go down. We're not going to be able to do it. Sorry. 
Notice in their response what they're certain of and what they're not certain of. They're certain that they cannot compromise. They can't rationalize this away. They can't say, this is just a little bending of the knee. It doesn't mean anything. This is just the cost of doing business. This is what is required for us to be in this place of influence where we can be advocates for our people. Wouldn't God want us in the halls of power rather than barbecued in a furnace? But they know that none of those arguments hold water. Because while we're called to faithfully engage with our culture, we are uncompromising in whom and what we worship. So for them, God's call is clear. They're certain of it. They're also certain that their God can deliver them out of the king's hand. They know their God's real. They know he's big enough. They know he's paying attention. They know that he delights to rescue and save. What they're not certain of is if he will actually choose to intervene and snatch them from the flames. He can, he may, but he also might choose not to. And they say, we're okay with that. We're going to give our God glory either way. Our task is to trust and obey. His business is to act. He can preserve us here and now or for the life to come. Living or dying, he will deliver us out of your hand, Nebuchadnezzar. But he is God and you are not. And as with Paul's story, out of the flames comes a snake with a capital S this time and bites. And a death sentence is pronounced against them. This is what we read in verse 19. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flames of fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Daniel's an incredible storyteller. I appreciate all the, the vivid details now, this burning, fiery furnace was very likely a domed kiln that was not a torture device. It was used for the baking of bricks and the smelting of metals. It just happens to be on site from the construction of this image. And the fire would have been made hotter by use of bellows, things that would blow air into the flames and raise the temperature. And Daniel details for us all of the clothing that his friends were wearing. He basically wants us to know that they were wrapped in kindling and dried newspaper, essentially. They were very flammable. 
and they were tied up and they were helpless. They would be unable to drag themselves from the fire. They'd be unable to even break their own falls. As the kids say, these guys were barbecue chicken. They were done. These were three Jewish exiles served up extra crispy. It's a good story, huh? I hope you found their example of faithfulness to the end inspiring. I'm kidding. It could have ended that way, but it didn't. What does the author of Hebrews tell us? He says this, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of those who through faith conquered kingdoms, obtained promises, and quenched the power of fire. He's talking about our guys. He's saying they conquered a kingdom. They obtained a promise. They quenched the power of fire. Let's go back to Daniel, verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, uh, didn't we cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king, one, two, three. It doesn't say that part. Uh, He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's commands and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. It's always violence with this guy. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Yeah, whoop. But this is also not how we want to be saved. We want to be kept from the fire in the first place or snatched from it as soon as possible. And God doesn't do either of those things. This isn't, it isn't God that takes them out of the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar, their boss, has to command them to come out, to demand that they get back into the office and show up for work. And inexplicably, it seems that they'd rather be in the fire than out of it. Why? No, this isn't because, like my wife, they run cold and they enjoy being toasty warm. This isn't a warm, hot shower. This is like a skin-crackling firestorm. It's all very puzzling. 
So what does God do? What does his salvation look like? I think we can jot down three notes. The first is this. God's salvation means freedom. These three men experience God's freedom in the flames. Four times Daniel draws our attention to their bonds. In verse 20, he says, he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind them. Verse 21, these men were bound in their cloaks. Verse 23, these three fell bound into the fiery furnace. Verse 24, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? But then what does Nebuchadnezzar report? I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. He had hogtied them. He wanted them limited, constricted, oppressed. Instead, the blaze serves an unexpected purpose. What is the only thing consumed by the flames? It's the ropes that bound them. God's salvation means freedom. And often in seasons of great difficulty and challenge, when we, we trust the Lord, that it, we discover that kind of old oppressions seem to burn away. Long-standing addictions or lusts or strongholds of fear seem to lose their power and no longer bind us. For example, as part of our discipleship, as part of our worship, Jesus invites us to give generously, to give a portion of our first and our best back to God so that he might use it for his purposes. This is one of those ways that God trains us to trust him, to walk in the power of our divine dependence. Now, I've seen folks who've long struggled in this way, hit a season of fiery trial, and then all of a sudden that stronghold of fear is just gone. They're free. Lord, I am trusting you to walk with me through cancer. How was it that I couldn't trust you to, to cover and to replenish those few hundred dollars that I, I sent to Pastor Salenga in the Congo or, or to Luke and Jessica Burry on their way to Berlin? God's salvation means freedom. And it's in the flames that he releases us. Second note is this. God's salvation also means rescue. But often God doesn't rescue us from the fiery trial. Rather, he preserves us through it. The fire raged, but they are not hurt. The flames burned, but they had not had any power over the body of those men. Their hair's not singed, their clothing's not harmed. They don't even carry on their persons the smell of smoke. Now, you might want to explain this as an exception, but then let me return to the story of Paul, our snake-bit apostle. This is what Luke records in the book of Acts. It's, when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, the venomous snake, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. 
They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. You see how the watching world interprets Paul's suffering there? They slander him. This is a dude that the gods must really hate. He must be exceptionally wicked. Or maybe his God is just cruel or powerless or something. God doesn't rescue Paul from the fiery trial. The snake does bite him. Its venom is deadly. It should destroy him. But instead, he just shakes it off, Taylor Swift style, back into the flames. And yes, I'm not going to sing for you. And yes, I did think about it. (laughs) Not even the smell of death rests upon him. And when the watching world sees that this devastation does not devastate, they change their opinion. They assume that some divine power must be at work. God's salvation doesn't necessarily mean we are rescued from the fiery trial. More often, God miraculously preserves us through it. And when that happens, the natives in Malta, they perceive the presence of a God. Nebuchadnezzar discerns in the flames a fourth figure who he says has the appearance like a son of the gods. What on earth does that mean? Which leads us to our third note. God's salvation means discovering community in the fiery furnace. A God who suffers and saves and walks with us in our suffering. Let's talk about that fourth figure in the fire. Nebuchadnezzar says it was like a son of the gods. Son of the gods is this kind of common Near Eastern expression to speak of some supernatural being from the heavenly realm. And I agree with him. And throughout the Old Testament, you have this kind of ambiguity between Israel's invisible God and a visible manifestation of God in this figure called the angel of the Lord. And oftentimes it seems like that angel is just that. It's a, it's a heavenly messenger. But there are other times where the language, I think, is intentionally ambiguous. And the, the lines begin to blur between God, between the Lord and the angel of the Lord. It says back in Genesis that that Jacob wrestled with an angel, but then in the same breath, it says he wrestled with the Lord. And I don't think that's accidental. I think that fuzziness is pointing forward to Jesus. God made visible. The God who will ultimately take on our tangible humanity and walk among us. I think this is just a fancy way of saying that before Jesus was ever born in a manger, 
I believe he walked with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in their fiery trial. Jesus, God's suffering servant, shows up in the flames. So when we get into our seasons of extremity, when things are just going awful and crazy, we're just looking, we're laser focused on looking for an exit from the difficult time. But if we open our eyes, we will discover the presence of God, a God who draws near to us in our suffering, a God who meets us in the fire, a God who suffers with us and for us so that he might save us. It says in Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The prophet Isaiah declares, Surely he, the Lord's servant, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The author of Hebrews celebrates, Because he himself has suffered, he's able to help those who are being tested. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God meets us in the pain. He meets us in the ugliness, in all the brokenness and horror and tragedy, and he walks by our side. He weeps with us. He upholds us by his strong right hand. And he's, he's there for every difficult step of faithful endurance, of, of defiant hope. And we just want instant rescue. We want to get back as soon as possible to a place where we don't need God to walk by our side. We don't need him to show up or show himself strong or offer his support. But what did these three men discover? It is better to be in the flames communing with Jesus than apart from him and away from harm. It's better to be in the flames with Jesus than apart from him and away from harm. We often want Jesus just to be Santa Claus. Show up, give me the gifts of health and wellness and prosperity, and then get out of the way and let me enjoy my stuff. Make yourself scarce until the next time I need or want something. That's not how this works. The church is not the earthly distribution center for divine goodies. It's the community of the fiery furnace. It's where we experience God's freedom and rescue, his preserving presence and his miraculous grace no matter what life throws at us. It's where we discover a God who walks with us through our suffering, a God who suffers with us and for us in order to save us. So we're going to end this morning at the communion table, I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. 
But it is here at the table that we have this kind of symbolic representation of what's going on here. Got the wrong ones going in the wrong direction. Here at this table, you will find a little cup of juice and a little bite of bread and a little bit of gluten-free cracker for those of us who are special and need those sorts of things. But they represent something deep and profound. They represent a God who came to suffer with us. A God who revealed his salvation by taking on our humanity, stepping into the pain and the ugliness and the muck of it all. to save us. A God who suffers and saves. A God who said yes to a Roman cross so that he could break the power of evil, sin, and death. And what does he do in that suffering? He opens for us community. He opens for us an opportunity for a renewed communion with a God who loves us. This is the communion table. This is what it took for us to commune with God. He suffers with us and for us to save us. And he does care about the fiery trial that you're going to face this week. And he might rescue you from it. He might snatch you from the flame so you don't even feel it. But he might walk with you through it and preserve you because he is in the business of what? Making all things new. Not only saving us from this week's fiery trial, but saving humanity from a cosmic fiery trial. And now as we live in light of that victory, as we live in the already but not yet, we come to this table to say we trust in you. To come to this table to say we see you there in the fire with us. To say, God, life with you even though it may be hard in this life, it's better to be in the flames with you than apart from you and away from harm. And every time we come to this table, we trust that he will ultimately do away with the fiery furnaces. And we will live in joyful communion with him and with one another the rest of our days. So we're going to sing a song, and as you come, I want you in, to invite you to come as an act of faith, as an act of worship, as an act of response. Press into this relationship of trust and love and dependence. Look around 
in the flames and realize that there is a God who's been there for you, suffering with you and for you so that he might save you. So as you come, grab your elements, take them back to your seats, and then after this song, we'll take them together as a congregation. Dear God, Lord, I pray that you would teach us to see you. May we see your very real presence among us. God, what do we say? You came, you suffered. You know our experience. And you did it all to rescue us. To ultimately rescue us for communion with you. Preach this to our hearts as we come and eat and drink at this table. In Jesus' name, amen.